Welcome to the Tree Planners Podcast for November 2021. And uh, Margaret, you're going to give us a little sort of rundown of what we're going to talk about today. And uh, we have two guests with us. Uh, Trisha and Irene, and I'll let you introduce yourselves. But first, Margaret, if you if you want to just uh, give an outline of what we're talking about on the episode today, that'd be great. Absolutely. Thanks for springing that on me. But um, today we are talking about highways and uh, a little bit of a different angle on highways because what we've heard kind of in the media is that there's these Greenbelt highways that are just, you know, being opposed by urbanites. Um, and people in the downtowns that can ride bikes and us rural people, we can't ride bikes and do all those sort of things. So we wanted to kind of bring some of the people, there's not, this isn't a comprehensive list of all the people, but just uh, some people that we know that are working on both the 413 and the Bradford bypass and talk a little bit about the projects, of course, but more so about what does local activism look like in these kind of cases? What are some of the frustrations people are having and why are local voices kind of being erased um, in this and kind of how that feels from a local perspective? So we are bringing highways down to the grassroots today. Um, so like I, like Adam said, we have Irene and Trisha. And uh, Irene, if you want to introduce yourself first and then Trisha next, and then we can talk a little bit about uh, the projects. Uh, so I'm Irene Ford, and I my voice has, I guess, become very loud during the pandemic, and it's the result of uh, a lot of changes to environmental and planning legislation, and I started paying more attention to that, and then at the same time, um, the current uh, Ford government introduced Highway 413, which will run through the northwest part of Vaughan, and it started really being connected to a lot of um, development uh, that was happening and MZOs that were getting approved in some cases. And the more I learned, the more concerned I became and the more I started getting deputations. And it was probably a bit more than an introduction, but that's how I how I got here. <laughs> that's okay. We, li- we like Genesis stories. That's good. Go ahead, Trisha. Um, my name is Trisha Hulsoff. So I'm part of the Bradford Women's Group, um, and I'm part of the campaign to um, stop the Bradford bypass. So my role is really more on like a community citizens level. Um, we heard about this project and that it was, you know, trying to start soon. Um, it really impacts our community. And we're like, well, what can we do about this? There's a lot of like the attitude in Bradford is this is a good thing. We need this. And there's not a lot of information or people speaking out against it. So we decided to get involved. And that's where things kind of stand right now. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's um, uh, the, the, the information that people have. Well, I mean, maybe it's a good place to start, but the information that people have on these projects is very, or, or most people anyways, the information that's put out there, it's kind of very surface uh, information. It's very simple. Like, you know, uh, you're going to be able to get to work faster um, and these sorts of things. It's going to save you time on your commute. Therefore, you're going to have more time at, at home with your family and friends and things like that. Um, so maybe we can go, uh, sort of really briefly into each project. So the 413, first of all, uh, can you give the, like the Coles notes on, on what that is, um, Irene? Yeah. So it's, uh, referred to the GTA West corridor or, or highway 413. And it is a proposed 60 kilometer highway that would start at the 401 and 407, it would run um, a little bit through Halton and then go up north of Brampton um, and then come in through Vaughan and end, uh, it would dead end at the 400 uh, right around King Vaughan Road. And it is uh, proposed to be 170 meters wide, four to six lanes wide, and it would have dedicated bus transit. And it's located where really where nobody lives. And uh, I think the Globe and Mail at one point called it the Sprawl Accelerator because it's likely to open up all the land surrounding that area. Um, And just to your point, I think people, not only is the information not available for the highway, people just really don't understand where it is, how big it is, that it's going through the green belt. The awareness is coming, but when we started, like people just didn't, had no idea, had never heard of it. Yeah, I guess if you want to do the bypass. (laughs) Yeah. 
Okay, so the Bradford Bypass is a 16-kilometer stretch of highway. It's supposed to be four lanes that connects the 400 and the 404. So it's basically running from Queensville Side Road, um, comes across the Holland Marsh, the Holland River, um, bypasses Bradford, and then comes out between 8th, 9th, and 9th line um, on Highway 400. So this is also like a green belt area. Um, it cuts pretty close to a couple of residential areas in Bradford, as well as some community parks um, and affects a lot of really rich farmland and stuff like that as well. Mm-hmm. And the rationale for both of these is is sort of more or less the same, right? Like, you know, it's going to save people time on their commutes. It's going to reduce, alleviate congestion. So I think uh, the 413, I think the rationale, that, that kind of was the rationale, but the 413 differs a little bit from the Bradford bypass because, you know, the information is at least a little bit more recent on it. And because it is a bigger highway, I think there's been a lot more studies done on it. Um, and it started out as a, a bigger uh, environmental assessment that was actually studying a, a much larger area in the GTA West, looking at transportation solutions. And Highway 413 was one recommendation of many that resulted. Um, and then there was an expert advisory panel that uh concluded that the environmental assessment was fundamentally flawed in part because it was such a large area that was looked at. And I believe that the highway actually still hasn't really had a proper environmental assessment done because it was really more a conclusion of the first part. And and now what's happening is we're in this, you know, stage two or part two of the highway. And it's really about um, where the proposed route will be and how they're going to build it. Um, they're kind of saying the question on if they should have built it was done in phase one. So I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether or not this is actually the uh, correct solution, and and even uncertainty uh, among the experts, right? Because we have this expert advisory panel, and the Bradford bypass is actually uh, you know predates the 413, and so they call the 413 the zombie highway. But I don't know. I think the Bradford bypass could win on that one if we if we did the chronology of them trish i don't know if you want to add to that yeah i think you're absolutely right on that like they've been talking about this highway since for 25 years so it definitely i think they've even been talking about it since the 70s so when you have something sitting for that long the attitude tends to be and has been in bradford too like well we need this we've been waiting for 25 years for this um that connection between the 400 and the 404 doesn't exist right now unless you're talking about going through Green Lane or kind of you have to come off a main highway route to cut across and come underneath the lake. So I think even our mayor in Bradford kind of ran his campaign on the promise, like, we're going to get this thing built. Yeah, no, I was just going to say one of the reasons I actually became interested in the Bradford bypass or I've, I've, you know, along with the the work I've been doing on the 413 and been trying to help raise awareness of that is because when I was doing research on the 413, I noticed the environmental posting to change the legislation on the Bradford bypass and I started to read it and it was trying to exempt uh, the EA approval from a condition of one of the approvals. And, you know, I have a little bit of knowledge. I'm not an expert, but I, you know, my university degrees and had touched on this a little bit. And I was kind of like, how can the EA approval be valid if you exempt yourself from the conditions of the approval? Like, I still don't understand that. And, and then I, I reached out to uh, someone who was a lot smarter than me, and I realized how naive my question was because of how this government currently works. But I thought I had struck gold and they were going to stop the Bradford Bypass, but it was you know very, very clear it was a much bigger battle than that. So I, I just still, I, I still can't believe they're going ahead with it um, mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah, now they've updated that to, to exempt themselves, right? Like now that's yeah, and that passed. exemption is now approved. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Trisha. Um, I also like, yeah, I was just gonna say I came into the project like very naive, also just assuming that like due diligence was being done. So when you find out that it's not and that it's by the province, the province is the one who has the power to exempt themselves and this is affecting our community, that's kind of when we all stopped and went like, hey, like we need to like do something about this and say something about this. Uh it reminds me of the matrix where you get the red pill and the blue pill. And I think they're comes a time when uh, local people are under this f- false impression 
that decisions are well uh, evidenced, that they've looked at the whole grand scheme of like, okay, so have we looked at this financially? And we had all the experts do this. And you you just assume that all the decisions are always being made in the, under a lens, or at least I did. And I think a lot of people go through this kind of awakening of like, oh, we just assume that this was being done, that you've already looked at the finances, that you've got an up-to-date environmental study that, you know, you're thinking about kind of trends and evidence in traffic or in development patterns. And then it changes all of a sudden when you go, oh, no, actually, that's not how it is. And then becomes like you go from shock and awe to like anger slash disgust because you're like, you guys are getting paid for this. And I think that's something that people don't appreciate of local activism is how much the people have to put in to understand the projects to get to the information that should be readily available. When you start asking questions and you start pulling the threads and you're like, but I don't understand. Why is that like that? And then you go to another document and then another document. And then you're like, why are we not telling people kind of like the real deal? And I know that both with Irene and Trisha, you've probably had that experience where you're like, where, like, how much work have you guys put into to understand these highways and to, to feel like, okay, now I know what the truth is. Like, either of you want to comment on that? I think awakening is definitely the right word. And yeah, just assuming that people who are being paid to do this work are doing their due diligence on it. So then, yeah, it does come down to citizens and our kind of civic duty to stand up for our communities. And that's when we were talking about like local level activism, like why that's so important, because who else is going to stand up for our literal like local environment? I often feel like I'm living in an episode of The Hunger Games uh, and that this (laughs) government is trying to like, disminute like just take away hope from people because they've been so regressive with um the environmental legislation and any action on climate change and and this government's actually been has been worse than any other government i think because it's what they're doing is actually worse than inaction they're actually compounding uh the impacts from climate change and they are gonna they are making uh, the impacts worse by the development agenda and the highway agenda that they are driving that uh, likely we will actually possibly feel in our lifetime and most certainly our children and children's children will feel. And um, so, you know, kind of almost every time I feel like we have a little bit, we, you know, two steps forward, I feel like this government changes the legislation to kind of almost dis- diminish our hope because it's, um, you know, we're just like we little ants and, you know, th- we're so like there's a a few of us and they're just in the legislator changing the legislation or I I, I feel like literally strategizing against us sometimes. Um, And I think I fumbled a little bit on what I was trying to say there, but it's, it is, it's hard. Um, I think the other thing that I've really learned and I try and focus on and I'm trying to bring awareness to, and I think it's really, really important at the local level and that all politicians, um, are aware of this is the difference between government and governance. So government is our politicians. It's who we elect and governance is the staff and the public institutions and the day-to-day function. And I feel like politics um, and government have gotten way too far into governance and in shaping the decision-making process and the information that is available to us as members of the public and into shaping the narrative to get the outcomes that they want that don't necessarily serve the public interest. And so a big part of what I've been trying to do at my level is to help educate people to understand how to follow and navigate those processes. And, and it really frustrates me how difficult it is for, you know, the average person to participate and to participate effectively. Um, You shouldn't have to be a subject matter expert in order to get your government's attention. And, but that seems to be what happens, nor should you have to be a subject matter expert to get your government to act, to enforce our legislation. Like we have a lot of legislation and laws that are just being ignored and not enforced and not complied with. The difference between governing and governance is something that probably not a lot of people think of. But what we have seen here and experience, and I know it's not just for these highways issues, is trying to 
have the spin stop, the, the public spin, and get down to the facts of the matter. And it becomes quite a power imbalance. And so people see these splashy, you know, investigative pieces on the front of newspapers and in, in the urban settings, right? Toronto Star has done a great job, National Observer, all those. They don't they don't know how hard it has been to move that rock to the point where media even really wants to talk to you about it. Right. Um, And so there's so much spin and misinformation that happens The the favorite one, you know, from a bypass perspective, and I'm sure you each have your favorite spin, like how is this possible was when we started um, with Trisha and others, there was a discussion about whether this went through the Holland Marsh, like, it's on the freaking provincial maps. I mean, I don't know how you deny it, but it was like, no, no, it doesn't go through the marsh. It goes through the Keswick marsh. Okay. According to a map, it's all green. It's the Holland marsh wetland complex. It's very big. It's a part of the green belt. And there's a line, which is the Bradford bypass. It goes right across it. And, and what that does is it minimizes local voices because they sound uneducated. They sound unorganized. They make them sound like as if, you guys are just blasting the horns for no reason. You can't even get your basic facts straight. And that becomes so demoralizing for local activists because you're going, I don't understand. It's like, like what is up is now down and what's black is now white. That, that, whole, that whole idea. And it really just alienates local activists to the point where their own community can turn on them because the media and some local politicians keep kind of dealing with these spin issues versus dealing with the facts. Adam, your screen's bouncing. Um, my screen is bouncing. So we're, we're using Zencast to record this and you can put your hand up to indicate that you want to say something. And then your whole video picture starts jumping up and down. It's actually super distracting and it makes me not want to click on that button in the future. Uh, but, but the local activist part I think is, is, is interesting because neither of you really were activists before these issues started. I, I'm like terrible because I won't take no. Like if they tell me, if I, if I have somebody tell me something and I don't agree with them, I'll actually go and read the legislation and then I'll go back to them and tell them why I don't agree with them. And, mm-hmm. and not a lot of people do that, right. Or, or able to do that or able to find the legislation. And, you know, I can't always do that, but sometimes I do do that. And then, um, and the narrative changes really, or the discussion, I think, changes really quickly when you start citing legislation or you start explaining why you don't agree with the person. And I think, you know, I think that's why I've been effective. I think it's why a lot of people um, are listening to me, to, and, and I'm, extra, I'm incredibly humbled by that. But I've also been, you know, when the Bradford mayor wrote that opinion piece after you, got, you guys did that, that workshop, and, you know, and to me, I read that and I was like, he, he is clearly trying to undermine the community members and the citizens who are trying to speak up. Like he, it was damage control for him. And, you know, and that needs to be called out. And I think that's happening more and more. And so politicians are getting um, a little bit more careful on that. And I think staff are getting, like I call out staff too. Like I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to say that staff are, Staff have to do their job and staff are sometimes they should have autonomy and that is not always happening. And, but if staff are enabling decisions to be made um, that aren't following due process or um, that are allowing politics really to lead the decision-making process, they need to get called out on that too. And, and Trisha, you, you weren't a, like I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, but an activist before this, Yeah, this is definitely kind of my first foray into it as well. And I think for me, it comes from a place of like community, right? Being part of the Bradford Women's Group and seeing the direct impact this will have on Bradford and our community, the people who are part of our group, all of that. Um, For me, I'm not someone who can sit here, like I'm not a professional, I'm not going to sit here and spit facts at you. Um, That's not really my style, but 
something I can do is share the message, put stuff out on social media. And I think people's eyes also kind of like glaze over when it comes to the facts as well. So when you talk about like the big ones, like we're talking $135 million per kilometer on this, or when we talk about induced demand and how this will bring more traffic to this highway, that's not a solution anymore. So you're also talking about like the spin on things and how that all kind of plays out. But that really affects this too, because we see all of Bradford Council saying, no, no, this will solve all the problems. That's simply not the case. So when they present the facts that we have as alternative facts, that's not helpful. So yeah, a lot of our job is just trying to cut through the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and Margaret and I have, we, we did a, I think it was one of our first episodes of this actually, where we focused on activism and uh, we interviewed a, a number of people who have some experience with it and, and talked to them about um sort of what being an activist meant to them. And one of the things that kept on coming up was being willing, and Margaret, you probably um, have a better way of putting this, uh, but being willing to sort of put yourself in a position of discomfort to try to achieve something that you believe is right. So I'm, I'm interested in, I mean, I think you've probably both, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, experienced sort of, a discomfort perhaps doing things that you weren't used to doing or sort of putting yourself out there in a way that you're not used to putting yourself out there uh, for criticism or what have you uh, from people who have a lot of power. Uh, so I'm interested in whether, what, what have you gained from that? What has that given you? How have you grown through those experiences? It's a big question. <laughs> I don't really think of myself as an activist. Okay. I like, I I think people think of me as that, but for me, like it was environmental concerns that brought me out and, you know, and got my voice sort of got my voice loud or got me actually speaking or sending in letters and getting concerned. But what really I think put me over the, like the conservation authorities act was the one that was like the, the straw on the camel back on the camel's back for me. That was like the last piece you know, I've, I've always highly respected the conservation authorities and valued the work they do and the programs that they offer. And when there was so much public opposition to that and the government went ahead and approved that, I think that was um, that was my moment where I was kind of like, I, I, I don't want to say I don't care anymore, but I was like, I'm going to learn how to tweet. I'm going to use Facebook. I'm going to start using social media and I, I can't, you know, I, I can't know what I know and not do something. So I don't know if that really answered your question, but I think what happens for me is, I, you know, I still don't, I still don't, um, you know, protests and rallies. I, I had really never gone to one. 2019 was the first time I would say I ever went to any kind of demonstration. And that was a climate change demonstration. So it's all still really, really new to me. So I still, I just feel like I want good governance. Like, I don't feel like I'm an activist. I feel like, I, I feel like, I feel like the government just needs to do their job and they need to follow their roles and responsibilities. And, and that's really what I'm advocating for. And they need to be making decisions that are reflective of um, the realities and the risks that are facing us now and in our future. So Trisha, I don't know how you feel. <laughs> um, definitely on the same lines. Like this is all very new to me as well. But like you said that like you can't know what you know and not do something. And that's exactly how I feel too. And like what made me get involved. Um, Bradford's a really small, tight-knit community. So for us being one community group who was really willing to like stand up and speak out against this really did kind of put us in the line of fire because we're the ones behind all the social media. We were, you know, vocal about who we were, our names are on everything. So yeah, absolutely. We're targeted in a lot of ways. Um, Council knows who we are and like what our stance is, but we also have a relationship with them for other projects. So it's really been an interesting experience. Um, but this affects our community and the future of our community. We can't fight for just recovery from things like COVID or fight for the future of women and children in our community and say that we support this. It just doesn't go hand in hand. I think that's the same thing for the government, right? They can't be saying they're going to build it and that they're acting on climate change. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, Margaret? Yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, no worries. I think it's, um, I think it's really interesting 
how it's intentional that it's so uncomfortable for us to wear the label of activist, right? That's an intentional thing in, in, in our charter of rights and freedoms, like protest and free assembly is one of those things. I mean, our whole democracy and our, our charter rights are set up that that's an expected thing, right? That, that it's, it's enshrined as a personal freedom for a reason. And yet to use that, becomes uncomfortable because now all of a sudden we're like those people, air quotes for those that can't see the video, we're those people who are professional protesters, professional activists, uh, ideological activists. There is such a smear campaign towards it. And I just find it so funny because I would think in a democracy where that right is enshrined, if you're talking about governance, again, um, Irene, People are a part of the governance, right? You, it's it's not a democracy that doesn't have people included, or else it wouldn't be a democracy. So I just I just find that whole interplay really interesting. That we have been felt to be like we're not supposed to be a part of the process, and yet, according to what our governance structure is, according to our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we are absolutely supposed to be here. We're absolutely doing what our democracy is designed to do. And yet we have to wear the shame and the stereotypes of people that have nothing better to do than just go down and protest all the time. And frankly, I have lots of things I would love to do instead of protest. I meet amazing, awesome people and I love it. But man, I've got kids. Mm -hmm. I've got parents to deal with. I've got like job. I've got a whole bunch of other stuff that trust me, if I knew that all this stuff was being taken care of, I probably wouldn't be doing this. But the problem is it's not being taken care of. And I refuse to wear the shame of being labeled as an activist. So I've started to reclaim it. Like, yeah, I'm an activist because that's what democracy is about. Democracy is supposed to involve me. It's not supposed to be moving on without me. And that may be uncomfortable for people, especially if they have not been used to recognizing the community as an integral partner in decision-making because we're the ones that know the policies. You guys don't know the policies. Oh, you didn't have that letter in by a certain time to get on the agenda. I'm sorry, you can't speak now. Like all of that procedural BS that they hide behind, you have to reclaim that and say, you know what? I do belong here. I, I pay my taxes. I'm a citizen of this country. I belong here, as uncomfortable as that may be. And so I would urge anybody listening and even for those that are nervous about wearing the activist thing. Yeah, that's that's what you're supposed to do. That's what keeps our country functioning <laughs> and good governance. Adam? Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, to your point, I mean, like democracy is a participation sport. And uh, I mean, it's interesting how narrowly it's been defined as your only point of participating really is every four years. Or like you say, you know, if you, if you do a deputation or something like that, you've got to You've got to uh, get your request in at a certain time or your petitions have to be in a certain format and all this sort of thing. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's definitely barriers there that that I think need need to be addressed. And um, just a quick plug for a great book that does that. Dave Meslin's book, Teardown. Yes, he goes into a number of strategies for that, uh, which is it's a really fantastic book. So the other reason that my voice got really loud was because Vaughn has no natural heritage network uh, plan. It, it was, they spent all kinds of money on a consultant and they never approved it. They finished it, they did it. And the reason why they never approved it was because a whole bunch of developers flocked down to their chambers and complained and asked them not to do it. And this was like 2015, it was a while ago, um, but I got kind of led to this because of MZO research that I was doing. And it really struck me that no one had been there to speak for the public interest and no one had been there to speak for our natural heritage and to speak for the environment. And only all these developers had shown up and said they don't want it. And I get it that they're the landowners and, you know, so they have an interest or, you know, they have the right to come and speak and, other things like that. But at the same time, I was just really shocked that nobody showed up to speak or there was no real defense in it. And it's just gone from there as well. Uh, and 
you know, two of the MZOs that got approved in Vaughan, they date all the way back to that natural heritage network and are, you know, same applicants who didn't want that to get approved. So, well, that speaks and, to and the, when you go and you delegate, it does, it gives counselors strength to maybe ask some questions that they wouldn't otherwise ask or to bring the issue up. Um, and I think people forget that. And I don't think that's being an activist. So I think it's also maybe helping counsel to, to make decisions that they want to make, but they need the public to show up and they need the public to support them. And we're all really, really busy. And I get that. Um, but we have to let our counselors know that we care and what we care about. Well, that speaks a bit to the double standard too, with, with, uh, the disparaging of citizens who get, um, you know, get, uh, start to participate in the affairs of their local government or provincial government or federal, whatever. Uh, because you have people at these meetings on a regular basis, but they're there because they're paid to be there. But then you get citizens yes. who are there on their own time. Uh, they could be at home, you know, having dinner with their family or whatever. Like they've got, they've got lives that they could otherwise be, um, doing spending time with, but they're there on their own time because they're uh, concerned about issues and they're not getting paid. And that's, you know, so to call, to call, to, to sort of say one is fine or not even really pay attention to one, but then to disparage the other is a double standard, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I was thinking about kind of local activism and highways and we've all kind of gone through it. And I'm thinking about people that are listening to this podcast who maybe are listening because they are really interested in the highways and they want to kind of hear. But I think there's some myths and I kind of feel like this is unplanned, Adam, so this is completely off the script here. Um, but I was kind of thinking of maybe I would throw out some myths and I would like each of you kind to kind of to address it. One or you, one of you, all of you or whatever, about what local activism um, what your experience has been with it. So the first myth that I would like to talk about, or the first perception, because maybe it's not a myth, but I want to get your reaction, is that the people that are behind these are professional organizers. The, the, the groups that are behind these highways are professional organizers and go. Who wants to handle it first? Their experience, what they think about that statement, I will hit that. We don't know what we're doing half the time. You just care. That's the only thing, right? So yeah, like I, for me, yeah, I do belong to an organization and we did decide to get involved with a bypass, but none of us had any environmental experience. No one has um, science backgrounds. We didn't know what to do with the facts of it. We just knew that, hey, this is bad and we care and we have to find a way to let our community know. That's it. Um, I, I think... You know, the community in Vaughan, uh, you know, there were some communities members who were directly affected by the highway and I got in contact with them and we started organizing and we started, um, you know, we had some support from environmental defense to kind of help network us and help connect us. But it's really been, you know, the community on its own and it's been community led and driven and very much grassroots. And I think one of the points that I really want to make is for the 413, what has made us really effective, I think, has been uh, kind of unifying along the route, right? So in York region and in Peel region and in Halton region. Um, so, but most of it, you know, it comes from the community, I would say. I would say there's definitely some organizations out there that provide support, but what's made and that's actually I think what's made us effective is that because it has come from the community and it has come from the people who live along the route I'm just going to raise the uh the double standard again though because you know the professional organizers or or you know these ENGOs or what have you uh that are behind you know these nefarious uh do-gooders that are behind uh all of this backlash to these projects you know, Come on, the developers uh, involved here, the amount of money involved that the government's be able to throw at it, what that's like over like around $10 billion for both of these projects now. Um, 
there's, I mean, Acon is is doing the freaking uh, public consultation, uh, the picks for the public information centers for the for Bradford Bypass. I'm not sure who's doing it for the 413, but look, it's it's just sort of ridiculous to point a finger at uh, community organizations, whether they've got funding or not, um, and say that uh, you know somehow they're the big bad guys in this scenario. Anyways. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Okay, the next one is that the people. Sorry, go ahead, Irene. No, I was just going to say it's it's very much David and Goliath mm-hmm. when you Absolutely. look at like resources and who and the players mm-hmm. are. Yep. Okay, the next one is the people that are uh, pushing back in the four thirteen the Bradford bypass are just simply anti highway people. They just hate highways and they're just anti everything. Who wants to take that one? Everybody I know who's drives, who's against this highway. Like I, my son plays rep hockey. I drive all the time. Okay. I'm going to admit it. So I, you know, I need highways as much as other people do to get around my community. But I think everybody knows that more highways are not going to solve our congestion. And it just doesn't make any sense. This highway is going to dead end at Vaughan. Where is all the traffic going to go? Right. So people are when they're understanding where this highway is, they're kind of like this doesn't like it's actually the local saying this does not make any sense because it's going to cause so many problems around the highway. And what about this? And what about that? So I, I so that's my two cents on that. Yeah, definitely. In my case, too, not just anti highway, but definitely anti doing something for the sake of development or doing something that hasn't been properly studied or explored or looking at the community impacts. So yeah, it's not just about highways. It's not even just about the environment. So I want to, and somebody said to me in the, in the very beginning of this, when we first started, they said, it's also about having transportation choices and the highway does not give us choices, right? It just keeps us in our cars and it's going to make more people have to be dependent on cars, right? So they're not giving us choices so that we can have walkable communities, more walkable communities so that we can take transit or we can cycle. We, we, I, like, I really, I can't go out my door. I could go to my kid's school. I can go to the park, but if I got to run an errand or go to the grocery store, I'm driving, right? I don't have the choice because of the way my community is set up. And I think that's really uh, important to understand as well. That's so true. In the case of like the Bradford bypass too, like this highway really serves to make Bradford more of a commuter town, whereas it's always been a very small town to begin with. So, you know, there's, we've seen the evidence that they're looking at making this a toll highway. And to me, that just kind of makes it worse because Bradford's whole reason for getting on board with supporting this project, like through council and a lot of the support that we see in town is that it's going to take traffic out and around from downtown Bradford. Whereas if it's a toll highway, that's not going to solve the issue at all. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of funny that they're building a highway so people don't have to visit the downtown. Do you know what I mean? Like if you look at highways yes. near downtowns, the downtowns suffer because of its proximity to the highways, which inevitably brings big box stores and whatever. So I think it's really interesting that the bypass is being positioned as the thing that will help downtown Bradford thrive when all evidence points to this type of solution where you don't have to go downtown and you can go around it to connect to other city centers or other shopping malls, you know, does not usually lead to, <laughs> to a downtown thriving. It's more of becomes a ghost town. And you can look at Barrie, like in our region, you can look in Barrie and you can look in Aurelia and see how these things, unless they have something to attract them, like a waterfront or some sort of feature that makes people go, I can't go get that from uh, that experience from a Home Depot. I want to go there. It's a choice that they're making. Um, and I, I love the term of Bradford, but I don't know if it has the same natural features draw that a barrier or Aurelia or a Toronto waterfront would have that would still want, you know, still attract people um, to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, And Bradford actually also just announced a downtown revitalization project. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, There's uh, well, there's just been some uh, inference of alternatives to the highways here. So talking about uh, not needing to rely on cars and uh, sort of walkable communities and things like that. But then there's also the 407, which is, uh, you know, that that sort of repeatedly comes up as an alternative, a toll highway, uh, sort of 
pretty close to uh, the four, where the 413, at least portion of it, a portion of it would go. And I think uh, it's also been discussed as a, as a part of an alternative route for a lot of the traffic that would otherwise use the bypass. Well, and I think the other thing that isn't getting enough attention is that a lot of this traffic and why we have so much traffic also comes from, you know, it's e-commerce. There's a huge change in um, our shopping habits, which are actually having this huge impact on land use for warehousing, but also on our transportation systems. And so I think both projects are really a lot of are, are about goods movement, right? Which is really about building these highways for the private sector. And I'm kind of like, so are we paving the green belt so people can get their Amazon packages within two days? Cause I'm not really okay with that. And then are we subsidizing these highways for the private sector as well for the goods movement? Because, you know, why can't they just use the 407? Because I think 6 billion, 10 billion would go really, really far to subsidizing the tolls on the 407 and would free up a lot of traffic. And so a lot of the argument around the bypass also has been getting goods to market. So uh, produce from farms in, in Bradford and uh, along with the, the Amazon uh, discussion. So why not the local market, for one, strengthen that, uh, enhance your local food security there? And maybe it's not a big enough market, perhaps, but there's probably linkages that could be increased uh, there. But then... Talking about supporting, revitalizing downtowns, uh, supporting local businesses and things like that. But these massive, as you point out, Irene, these massive uh, projects are more likely targeted towards really large corporations such as Amazon. And that, that that's doing exactly the same thing. It's 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 a updated version of the sort of sprawl malls on the outside, the mega malls on the outside of the, or the big box stores or what have you on the outside of uh of built up areas, but now it's all Amazon that everybody's getting and that's hollowing out local businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just add to that too, is what the research shows is when you build these huge infrastructure projects that are in the billions of dollars or even millions, it's a drain from other investments. So, um, you know, we're looking at really massive deficits that this government has put forward bigger than they were supposed to be. And we are choosing to uh, literally invest money in something that we know will draw funds from things that can really improve on people's lives on a day-to-day basis, right? And so to your point, Irene and Adam, like, who are we building it for? And the I, I listened to a podcast a while ago that said, sometimes when you say no, you forget that you're also saying yes to something. And when you say yes to something, that also means that you're saying no to something. So when we're saying yes to highways, there is another flip side, which is what are we saying no to? When we take billions of dollars out of our budgets, what does that mean we're not going to be able to do? Because the reality of it is the province doesn't operate in a way where it has unlimited funds. All we keep hearing is that there's not enough money for this, not enough money for that. We have to cut back here. We have to cut this. And I think that's something that people have to think about. Is your drive worth the um, divestment into other services? Because eventually it's going to happen. It's it's not an unlimited fund, um, at least to how the province province says it. So, you know, when we say yes to something, when we keep hearing like we are the government of yes, what is the flip side? What are we what are we saying no to? Um, I think we're probably close to wrapping up. Are we, Adam? Yes. I, w- I would like to hear some sort of some positive visions of what, what you're sort of hoping for, like ideally would happen with this. But first of all, I just want to address something that, that people may think about in response to what you just mentioned, Margaret, which is that the government is investing, considers spending projects on, in, on, on, in, on projects, spending money on projects like this as an investment that will increase economic growth and pay dividends in the future, right? So it'll pay for itself almost. But we know with sprawl infrastructure that there's, I mean, and we know there's a massive infrastructure deficit in in Ontario. And, and projects like this are incredibly wasteful. I mean, just think about, you know, they're talking about enabling people's commutes to jobs in the GTA and things like this. So people spend an hour plus in their car to get to and from work. Um, it, where I live, I mean, I'm up in Barrie, but people get home from work at like seven o'clock at night. And, and I, I just boggles my mind that that's, they leave at like six o'clock in the morning and get home at seven at night. 
and I think Margaret, you did that for for quite a for a long time. Um, and it's it's not an uncommon thing at all. Yeah, but that's just insanely wasteful. And 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 you know, they make also the argument that it's not going to be uh, you know emissions aren't a concern with these highways because we're going to be our modal share of uh, like our transportation is going to be shifting to electric vehicles and stuff like that. Well, electric vehicles are not without consequence. There's there's lots of environmental impacts that they have as well. So. If we can build complete communities, if we can situate jobs where people live, close to where people live, and provide them with uh, efficient, accessible, um, so you know, cheap, preferably free, public transit or active transit where they're able to walk or take their bicycles uh, to get around to access basic amenities, that's far, far, far more efficient. And not only that, but it also has co-benefits in terms of health. Uh, people's health imp- is improved, the costs in the healthcare system are reduced, et cetera. You can keep on going. The externalities associated with with commutes and, and vehicles uh, and the impacts that that has on the environment are reduced. Uh, so we're spending less money on environmental re- remediation and things like that. So it's just dumb to continue going down this road where we're, we're throwing money at, at, at uh, well, could literally continue going down this road, right? We're throwing money at paving over paradise, as Joanne Mitchell said. Um, yeah, so how about something uplifting up, uh, to, to end this with? What, what would you guys like to see happen? What, I don't know about the future, but what I would end with on uplifting is that the positive thing that has come out of the current, the current government is I am actually more connected with people across the province than I have ever been at any other point in time in my life. And I think it's been absolutely a phenomenal and, uh, we've been sharing information and we've been kind of, you know, strategies and sort of, you know, talking to people about what's going on in Hamilton, talking to you guys about what's going on in Bradford or what's going on in East Gwillimbury. And even there's another woman I, you know, I've reached out to or I've connected with in Peterborough and it's just been, it's been really amazing. And I'm, I'm actually absolutely thrilled at the level of civic engagement that's happening right now because I, it's higher than at any other point in time that I can ever remember. And I, I think that's fabulous. And I hope that continues to help. And I think that will really help shape government going forward. That's, that's my hope for the future. I'm going to jump on that too, because I think, yeah, it really is for me about civic engagement and seeing the number of people who are willing to listen. Like maybe people don't necessarily have the time to jump in and invest in activism, but people are listening. So we saw, for example, in the study that came out um, about um, kind of like the approval ratings on the Bradford bypass this week. And those numbers showed, Margaret, can you help me out here? I think it was 40 something percent. 48% opposed. Yeah. So to me, that's a huge change from when we first started this campaign. People just weren't even willing to listen. Or I think the general issue was that people just didn't know there was anything wrong with it. So just the fact that people are willing to listen, that on a civic level, people are, yeah, getting more involved and talking to each other. Like Irene said, that's really encouraging for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would kind of, and this is something that I try to talk about every time Adam, you can tune out because that's normal anyways. But like something I always get onto is like people assume before they get involved in these kind of things that it's so much work and it's so depressing. Oh my gosh. Like it must be so hard. I hear it all the time. It must be so hard for you to be doing the job that you do just all the time getting like, you know, lots of bad news and just, you have to always be good. And there, until you're in it, yes, of course there's hard days. Of course you get those like kick in the stomachs where you're like, Oh my gosh, I thought this was going to go this way. But way bigger than that and way more important than that is meeting all these really cool people who just start to understand you and understand what you want to do. And there is like a new energy in life where you can actually feel connected to your community on a very local scale, on a very large scale. So it's kind of like this thing that I see as like almost a, a blessing in disguise where you think this is must be so difficult and all the troubles you're going through. And then you realize all the people that come into your life 
you know, you may not be, you know, having beers with them every night, but like the people that you can connect to and share a laugh with, and you go through a struggle with them, it makes your life so rich. And so anybody that's listening to this going, I don't know what I would do. I don't know how to get involved. I have no place in this. I just know how to send tweets and that's fine. I mean, that's maybe that's all that you can do. But if there's a piece of you that says, I just want to learn more. I just want to meet more of these people. I will tell you, it is like, it is life-changing. And I don't, I don't try to be hyperbolic with that, but it really is. You start to meet people who make you believe and make you see that the, the, the potential for humans is limitless, right? That there are so many strong, dedicated, caring people who are going to have to usher in the next generation and help with raising the kids. They're going to have to be the ones that are on the front. We haven't even really talked about climate change. I know we're out of time pretty much, but like these are the kind of relationships that we're going to need to take us into the future. And getting involved in these kind of things is kind of that entry into, oh my gosh, I can actually be a change maker in my community. How big or small your role is, it doesn't matter, but I can be connected to a whole vibe that makes me realize hope is possible and change is possible. And that I think is like priceless, like the MasterCard commercial, you know, priceless. This made me think of all the, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's a cool thing to say now, but vibing. It's a whole vibe. Just vibing. Yeah, we still vibe. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Do you know what? Um, like I, I, anyway, I think you can end with priceless because I think that was perfect. But I think that like, it reminds me of being in university. Like I haven't met this many people or socialized or exchanged this many kinds of ideas um, that I'm excited about or I'm passionate about since university. Like that's what, this the last year has been for me but I think the pandemic has been very eye-opening for a lot of people um and uh you know uh, the whole concept that we talked about in the beginning about you know maybe government's not actually checked all the I's and dotted all the t's on these decisions that they're making and that was really evident in the pandemic and I think that's also brought a lot of people out of the woodwork and got a lot of people concerned and wanting to say more like not just on the environmental stuff or on the highways, but across the board. Well, so. we're, we're just about at an hour. So um, I think we'll wrap up there and thank you so much for joining us, Trisha and Irene. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm always happy uh, whenever anybody wants to hear what I have to say. I'm, I'm very humbled <laughs> and privileged by it. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you guys. Because you're a parent like me. We just get used to being ignored. <laughs> <laughs>